Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Pete Davis to the show today to talk about his new book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Pete Davis is a civic advocate who works on projects aimed at deepening American democracy and solidarity. His Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times. Pete Davis, welcome to the podcast. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I have been a longtime listener of the New Books Network, and it is wonderful to pass through to the other side. Well, Pete, I'm happy to have you passing through to the other side in this respect. (laughs) Um, One thing I like to ask people before we start talking about your book is whether there was someone or something in your life that had a particularly strong influence on your intellectual development. Yeah, you know, I had, and I mentioned this, I actually am so into having gratitude for our influences that I put a whole section at the end uh, of the book called Influences. And there were there was actually this trio of influences that deeply affect all of my thinking. Um, one, and they all are in, uh, you know, different fields. So one, probably the, the largest impact on this book was uh, Ralph Nader, the act, the American activist. Um, I had worked with him for two years, and I've been a fan of him my whole life. And he greatly affected this because he is such a great exemplar and evangelist of long haul cause work. He, uh, you know, he has a sign in his office of a, uh, you know, this is it was like an old sign that was one of the original memes before the internet of a a frog being eaten by a bird, and then the frog reaches out of the beak and tries to grab the bird to free himself. And then it says below, never give up. And um, that's the whole spirit of how uh, Nader approaches all of, uh, you know, his civic activism. It's, you know, let's push for decades and never give up, even though it's easy to get cynical. A second was uh, Robert Putnam, uh, the writer of Bowling Alone. And he turned me on to, you know, when I was coming through college, everything was about the formal institutions of politics. I was a political science major and everything was about, you know, the design of the um, the design of the parliament or presidential system, the structure of the economy, things like that. And he turned me on to this whole other lens in which to look at things, which was community and civic engagement, the cultural, the civic culture of, uh, of a people and that effect on politics. And then the third was this wonderful Brazilian-American philosopher, Roberto Unger, who, you know, talks about how uh, change often happens through revolutionary reform. You have a prophetic vision of where a society should go, and then you do piecemeal action in the direction of that vision. And that democracy is the continuing story of these democratic experiments where someone has a prophecy and then chips away in the direction of that 
vision uh, through reform and all of these uh, all of these folks, whether it's civic action or, you know, political prophecy and action or community building, it's all long haul work. And in promoting all of these ideas, all three of these folks also, um, you know, uh, embarked on long hauls themselves. And so both in the content of their work and in the way they went about uh, advancing it, I was inspired by this idea of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 year projects. Well, you observed a problem among your peers, or perhaps in society generally, and dedicated is aimed at solving that problem. What is the problem? Well, it's the problem that I call uh, infinite browsing mode. And the best way to talk about it is to talk about literal infinite browsing mode, which is where I start the book. You know, I'm sure many of you listeners have had this experience. Uh, it's late at night and you start browsing Netflix or Hulu looking for something to watch. You scroll through different titles trying to find something. You're inundated with all these options. You're like, oh, I should read a few reviews. Maybe I'll, I'll watch a few trailers to see what's worth watching. And then, but suddenly, you know, you find you you know you break out of your days and you see oh gosh i've been on this menu screen for 30 minutes and i'm too tired to watch anything now so i might as well cut my losses and fall asleep uh this is what i call literal infinite browsing mode but it's a perfect metaphor for what we're all experiencing as a generation which is we are inundated with options um and oftentimes we find ourselves in the pursuit of keeping our options open Stay and fear of commitment, staying on the menu screen of life instead of picking a movie and seeing it all the way through, and um, and uh, you know that that message came to me when I was going through school. I, I was told by older people, you know, the best thing you can do is keep your options open, live for your future self, pick the job that'll help keep options open for the next job. Don't get tied down with this person or this place because you'd never know what'll be around the corner and near and dear to my heart, you know, don't speak too much about what you believe now because that might close off. Um, that might make people make assumptions about you and close off options for future, uh, for your future self. Um, the message all adds up to keeping your options open. But so why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because the people that end up earning the most respect, having the most impact, feeling the biggest sense of belonging and community, and eventually, you know, frankly, just, you know, feeling the deepest sense of joy are often those who totally ignore that advice. It's the people who commit to particular things, the people who go all in on a place or a craft or a cause or a community or stewarding an institution or most significantly on specific particular people. Um, they're the ones that have the most impact and, and, and feel the most joy. And so this book is a bit of an intervention to say, there's going to be a lot of people telling you to keep your options open, but here's a case for commitment in this age of infinite browsing. And do you think that infinite browsing is an American problem or... Global I, I think it's, or what? Yeah, you know, I, I I often get asked, you know, yeah, I often get asked the time question on route, like, is it a twenty first century problem? And in in some, this is an interesting question, also on like, is it is it specific to certain places? I I, I feel uh, two 
sides of this. One is I feel everyone, especially in modern life where, you know, you have a much larger capacity than say 200 years ago to travel other places and see a bunch of different ways of life and life paths and also have the information technology that are bringing a bunch of images and of uh, of all different walks of life to you, even if you're not traveling, um, that we are, there has been um, that most people do feel inundated with options and struggle with making commitments. But I do feel that there are some things specific to now and specific to, you know, places like America that um, that might add to this. So one is this, you know, an economy that values less particular things and instead, you know, moves towards extreme profit maximization. So, you know, money, if you organize everything around the pursuit of money, which is an American quality, you, um, you, you know, you have the the bonds of loyalty between, say, a firm and their workers, between a firm and the city that it's in, and a firm and even itself, you know, um, like existing into the future. Um, it's uh, those are eroded by the kind of profit maximization if there are no bulwarks of um, of other parts of culture that are preventing that. So that's one thing that might uh, dissolve some of the bonds to particular things on an economic level. On a cultural and educational level, one thing I've seen in America a lot is that our education system, both formally with colleges and grad schools and what they tell you in high school and informally in the like spirit of self-betterment in that you see on Instagram feeds. Um, it is very about it's it's very about individual advancement um, as opposed to education for attachment. So education for advancement I talk about in the book is education to give you a private individual tool set to use for your own purposes to keep your options open. Education for Attachment is about teaching you about things that implicate you in a way, that what the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead called evoking reverence and duty. You know, you learn about a practice that you should join, or you think about your career not as a career, but as joining a profession that has a mission statement. For example, you know, the mission statement of public health is to heal people. The mission statement of the law is to preserve equal justice under law. To think about yourself as part of a profession is more attachment. To think about it as a career is advancement. And um, tells you that the, you know, the best way to help yourself is to you know, improve yourself just for your individual self. It's never about, you know, better yourself by entering into more relationships with particular things outside yourself, craft practices, communities, places, people, causes, um, that, that is de-emphasized, um, uh, in a culture of open options. So, um, I would say that is present in America more than elsewhere. A final part in America that Robert Putnam writes a lot in, you know, his work after Bowling Alone is that there's been a decline in America of attachment institution institutions. So what are the types of institutions that help you with commitments to particular things? Well, it's religious communities or civic groups or a culture of, um, you know, 
age integration where you are around elders a lot um, and that help you know teach you about things that you can become involved with. Um, but when we have you know a decline in you know religious communities, we have a decline in civic groups, a decline in neighborhood connection, and a increase in age segregation, you're going to see less of that. And that shows up in the hard, uh, you know, social science and polling data. It's not just one person's gut opinion. Right, right. So uh, in response to what you just described, you recommend a culture of commitment as a counterculture. Do you see it as an alternative to the culture of options or infinite browsing? or in fact, in opposition to it? I, you know, I, I, I do think it is a counterculture in the sense that the dominant culture doesn't push us into it. You know, the dominant culture pushes us to build our resumes and not get tie- tied down to a place. It tells us like abstract skills that are fungible as opposed to craft skills that are particular or better. Um, it tells us not to get too sentimental about anything because it might be sold off or bought out or downsized or made more efficient. You know, the, the dominant culture says don't take anything or hold true to anything too seriously and don't be surprised when others don't either. And the reason I call it a counterculture is you really have to rebel from that culture to become the types of people, the types of solid people that you know, make particular commitments to be what I call, you know, a citizen committed to a cause or a patriot committed to a place or a builder committed to a long-term idea or an artisan committed to a craft practice or, you know, a totally uh, under-celebrated thing being a steward committed to not, you know, getting the accolades of inventing something new, but keeping watch over an institution and community to steward and conserve it. Um, or to, you know, do the most rebellious thing of all, which is, you know, commit to particular people over the long haul and live not just for yourself, but for others. So you do have to rebel um, and quiet some of the noise of the dominant culture that might look askance at making those commitments. Um, so I, that's why I called it a counterculture. But there are two things that are interesting here that make it not you know, uh, just like they're at war, the counterculture of commitment versus the culture of open options. Um, One is that I admit to right at the beginning of the book is browsing is part of life. Um, You know, my opening line right after the intro is, I'm here, let's start by giving browsing its due. And there are parts of our lives where we need to liberate ourselves from involuntary inherited commitments. Um, because, you know, one of the pleasures of browsing is it, there are times when you need to be flexible. You need to be in the, uh, in my fellow young people's phrase, you need to have it be chill, um, so that you can explore and find out, uh, what is the second pleasure of browsing, which is finding out who your authentic self is. What's the thing that truly speaks to you, not just the thing you inherited involuntarily. And finally, browsing is quite fun. You know, it leads to a lot of um, novelty and experience and adventure. But my point is not to say, you know, browsing is bad, bad, bad. It's to say that's good, but at certain points um, are browse, you know, these pleasures of browsing get haunted by pains. So 
our flexibility eventually gets haunted by choice paralysis. We've jumped from thing to thing to thing, but then suddenly we're hoping to settle down a bit and it becomes hard to commit to any given thing after you've jumped from thing to thing to thing because you're always thinking about the grass is always greener and something else. Our novelty, you know, we start discovering that we might, if we commit to something, we might have a fear of missing out on the latest hot new thing. But if we don't commit to something, we might miss out on the deepest novelties of all, which are the novelties that come at the end of a long haul. You know, the experience of becoming an elder in your community or really mastering a craft or celebrating the 10th anniversary of something and feeling the level of comfort you feel having been in something for 10 years. And finally, authenticity, I will never speak ill of that. You know, it's very good to have our searches for our true authentic individual selves. But eventually, if if you hold up your own individual authenticity above everything else and you refuse to be associated with anything that doesn't perfectly fit who you conceive of yourself as, um, you'll eventually have nothing that you associate with because nothing will perfectly fit who you are. Every type of um, association, community, joining up with an institution, believing in a cause bigger than yourself – implicates your identity. It implicates your reputation. It's messy just practically to interact with other people that are different than you. And so sometimes if you feel like you're just constantly searching for things that fit your perfect authentic self, you might find what the you know uh, sociologist Emile Durkheim called anime, which is the feeling of having no community at all and having no sense of meaning at all because we are only oriented to meeting with others. And if we never you know, work with others, we lose all sense of meaning. And that's a deep spiritual loneliness. So part of my message is browsing's good for part of our life, but eventually, you know, don't don't live in the hallway forever. Don't be on the menu screen until you fall asleep. Don't be in infinite browsing mode. Um uh, for too long because eventually you're going to miss out on the deep impact, the deep community, the deep sense of purpose and calm, and the deep joy that comes from joining up with this counterculture of commitment by dedicating yourself to particular things. Well, there can be uh, problems with uh, the counterculture of commitment. Now, I, I imagine you agree that commitment isn't always good, and history is filled with true believers who have been selflessly, totally committed to fascism, uh, communism, terrorist groups, uh, organized crime. People are committed to lots of things that are morally and in every other way reprehensible. So is it the commitment per se that you're advocating, or is it a more nuanced uh, plea? It's... um what you know this is a a question of of balance um it's it's a reminder you know there's a lot of stories in our culture about liberating yourself from involuntary commitments and stories that i totally support and you know care about and fight for you know these stories of liberation where you know um someone was part of you know, some cult and they were able to get out of it, or someone was under the heel of an oppressive regime and they were able to get out of it, or someone was expected to be one way and it was inauthentic to them. And they liberate themselves and are able to be freed from that path that they weren't, 
meant to live on. And we know in our culture, probably not enough, the, the, you know, there are continuing liberation struggles that we, of course, need to fight for and dedication and commitment are part of those as well. But um, there's more talk in our culture of kind of the threat of overzealous meaning. But what the point of this book is, is to balance that with the threat of lack of meaning, lack of community, lack of commitment, lack of purpose, um, because that is a threat too. And all of those, you know, a, a world, a society where no one's dedicated, they might be free from the demons of commitment. You know, they are the, you know, oppression, uh, overzealousness, um, apocalyptic, you know, apocalyptic actions, things like this. But there are demons of non-commitment. And I would even go as far as to say they're the demons of the worst types of commitment are bred in places where there's a lack of commitment. So when people are so lost um, and don't feel kind of rooted to, to, um, to any particular thing, um, that is when you start having someone, and I talk about this in the book, who wants to give them a heavy dose of immediate meaning through joining up with some fascist-like thing or cult-like thing, a zealous cult of sorts, um, that they find a bunch of people hungry for that. Whereas, you know, what a lot of you know historians and political scientists have pointed out is that when you have these mediating institutions, like a culture where people have a bunch of different lower temperature commitments in their lives, they're less susceptible to um, those uh, the temptations of the zealot zealous cultist. So when you have um, you know hunky dory civic groups, and you have you know people who love. Uh, you know, who love their particular town or people who are working on building up a spe- specific project or care about stewarding their religion or, you know, care about the people in their family or their friends and they have, you know, a strong bonds there. When someone comes along and says, like, I'm here to give you a giant heavy dose of meaning, join my zealous cult, they're saying, oh, you know, we're already doing fine here. But in a world where a lot of things are falling apart, the institutions are corrupted, community is in decline, people feel alone, people feel confused, people don't feel rooted uh, to particular things, then that temptation becomes a lot more tempting. And so I actually think this, uh, um, what David Brooks calls commitment pluralism, where your commitments, um, where you have multiple organic commitments and they balance each other out is actually the healthiest protection against the most extreme and zealous forms of apocalyptic commitment. Well, that's a good point. It's uh, it's being more integrated rather than just committed to one kind of thing. Yes. Uh, you seem to approve of shedding inherited commitments, um, but to do that means giving up such things as patriotism or um, religion or saving the family farm, which has been in the family for generations. Is that what you meant? What I mean is that, you know, I, I'm i not saying folks should, you know, it's uh, I'm not saying folks should automatically shed their inherited com- involuntary commitments. I'm just saying that in, you know, one of the reasons 
people are are um, into infinite browsing mode is or, you know, having periods of their life where they're browsing and, you know, kind of wanting to take a step back from commitment is because they want to um, examine whether those inherited involuntary commitments are things they want to continue. And so, you know, you see in in many cultures an invitation to return to the inherited involuntary commitment and making it a voluntary commitment. So for example, in I, in Amish communities in America, there's the Rumspringa, where you know adolescents in the Amish community are invited to go out and see the world and decide if they want to voluntarily rejoin um, their community. And that's an example of kind of converting an involuntary inherited commitment into a voluntary one. Because I'm, you know, the, the only thing I'm behind is that you should have an initial spark of authenticity when making your initial commitment. You should feel it speak to you in some way, which is kind of in, incorporating, um, incorporating, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the discoveries of the last of modern life, which is that there's a part of us that wants agency, um, that wants, you know, that wants to feel like the things that we are doing are our own, um, and that's why I, you know, this book is in praise of voluntary commitment, not necessarily involuntary inherited commitment. But involuntary inherited commitment can become voluntary commitment if you feel it's still true to you and you affirmatively choose to steward something. And I interview these folks who, um, in the book, I interview 50 long haul heroes for the book, and some of them, uh, I have a whole section on stewards, and many of them are stewards of the. Uh, commitment they inherited. So I interviewed uh, the rabbi in my town, Rabbi Schwartzman, who, um, who, you know, inherited this millennia-long religious tradition and decided that she wanted to affirmatively become a rabbi and have her um, have her vocation be passing on that inheritance. Um, and stewarding it for the next generation of Jews in my town. Uh, you know, Peggy Berryhill, the radio host of, um, it was a radio host of a uh, native community and issues uh, radio show on the West Coast. That's, you know, all across the West Coast, different native communities um, t- tune into her show to learn about the latest happenings in Indian country, um, as it's called uh, by her. And, um, and they, uh, that is her deciding to voluntarily continue being a steward of the community she was born into. Um, but each of them have a feeling that they voluntarily, uh, you know, affirmed that continued commitment, not just doing it out of rote um, need because they're forced to. And you have a model in the book uh, with a relationship between dedication commitment and loyalty tell us about that yeah you know it's um it in some ways they're they're all uh they're all similar words very close together you know um i one way i think about uh dedication as a word um is that it you know it it involves a bunch of different what I call dedicatory virtues. So I talk about, you know, there's liberatory virtues like being able to critique uh, the current system or being able to um, 
to look clearly at what's going on and being able to um, uh, unhook its grips on you. But there's also dedicatory virtues, which I think go into dedication. So one of them is imagination, the ability to envision what isn't there yet. Another is synthesis, the ability to make connections and connect people. Focus is part of dedication, like the ability to concentrate in doggedness, returning to the same task again and again with passion. A passion itself is a dedicatory virtue, like the enthusiasm required to sustain engagement. Reverence is part of dedication, you know, the ability to be awed by something, you know, bigger than yourself. And internal to dedication, I, um, I include the word commitment, the ability to stick with something despite there being other available options. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, that those virtues add up to the ability to dedicate yourself and, um, and loyalty is part of that. You know, I, I don't talk too much in the book about specifically loyalty because I, I don't want to evoke um, I didn't want to evoke like dedication and commitment as like a dead rule. I didn't want it to be like you must be loyal. That is what's required of you. Do it because I said you said so to yourself. I wanted to talk about how commitment and dedication is much more organic. Um, that it's like planting a seed and building a relationship, and the relationship becomes so strong that it eventually rewires your sense of meaning and your sense of what is fun and your sense of what it is that you want to do in the short run. Um, even though, and over time that distraction and boredom and temptation that can, um, threaten a long haul eventually becomes easier and easier because the commitment has grown organically inside of you. Um, and so that's, you know, why I tried to avoid saying loyalty too much. And, you know, what I think it all adds up to, and I talk about this with the word dedication is, and part of the reason I, you know, the moment when I felt like, oh, you know, there is something here to this was when I I, I realized that dedication has two meanings. Um, one sense of dedicate is to, uh, you know, uh, to commit to something for the long time, for a long time, like she was dedicated to the project. But another sense of dedication is like to make something holy, like they dedicated a memorial or they dedicated a new church or synagogue. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really don't think that's a coincidence that that those words, those meanings merged, because I think there's something holy we do in those extraordinary moments when we set out on a long haul commitment and something holy that's happening in those countless ordinary moments when we keep a commitment and preserve it and continue it. Um, and uh, that's what I think all of these, you know, aspects of dedication add up to is a, is a sense of, you know, dedicating our time, making our time a little bit more meaningful, purposeful, some might say magical or holy, uh, because the more you layer on, um, you know, longer strands of time by working at something over and over again and returning to something over and over again and keeping a relationship longer and letting it go deeper, the more uh, special it becomes. Yes, I was very impressed with that insight when I read it in the book the, about the two meanings of uh, dedication. Uh, I also thought it was interesting, your observation and uh, commentary about why soldiers often have a hard time readjusting to civilian life. 
Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and, and I, I learned about this from a wonderful book, uh, Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Um, and, you know, the thing that he pointed out in the example he gave was soldiers, but you can see it with kind of anyone who was part of a high intensity mission driven community. When they leave it, they often, um, you know, you'd think, you know, coming home from war, you'd want to never go back um, because, you know, we have all the, you know, pleasant comforts of kind of ordinary life here. Um, and, uh, you know, you can pick up food really quickly. You're not in too much danger. Um, and, uh, but what he, when he interviewed a bunch of these folks and what has been the experience of many folks is it's very hard to adjust because in ordinary life outside of their experience in war, um, there is much less of a sense of purpose, much less of a sense of connection, much less, much less of a sense of depth which are the three things I say are on the other side of commitment um, in the kind of humdrum of ordinary daily life. Um, and they end up, you know, missing um, that time. And he talks about soldiers, but he also talks about like people who were part of a big movement, like people who were in the civil rights movement, you know, fighting the fire hoses, having their life in danger while struggling for this thing. They both, you know, remember, they know that that was a worse time objectively for them. Hard things were happening to them. They hadn't won their struggle yet, but they remember feeling that sense of purpose and community and depth and joy back then um, that, you know, what they were doing had meaning. And um, part of the reason I bring this up is um, I wanted to show that commitment is a way to start getting some of what they were having, you know, um, you know, it doesn't need to be that extreme. I even talk about a famous essay by William speech by William James, where he says, you know, we need a moral equivalent of war. You know, the goal isn't to have more wars. The goal is to have more moral equivalent of wars. And, um, what he means is we need more opportunities to, uh, you know, to, commit to something and have it be a meaningful mission driven community, a community where you're accountable to each other and accountable to a mission and what you do matters. It's not just for yourself. And uh, that's why I thought it was important to bring that, that story up. Yeah. On the, on the other side of it, something you mentioned a little earlier is um, that institutions like um, businesses or organizations where the predominant idea is maximizing profit, I think is what you said, that drives people away from risking uh, commitment. A little earlier, a few weeks ago, we had a, a guest on the show who suggested that a consumer culture, basically capitalism, uh, has generalized to relationships, especially to romantic relationships. And does that fit with your view of of what the challenges are for this generation to making commitments? Yes. You know, I, I talk, I have a whole, you know, the first half of the book is about the individual psychological experience of you, the reader, and your st struggles with commitment. But the whole second half is about the culture that leads to this. Um, what can we change structurally that can make it easier for people to be committed? and dedicated. And I talk about the difference between production and consumption. So, you know, consumption says, 
you know, it's all about you. Have It's the Burger King lo- slogan. Have it your way. You get exactly what you want immediately. There's not a lot of purpose to it. Um, it doesn't build any relationships. It's just kind of you alone getting what you want. Um, but there's this other side of the economy that's incredibly purposeful and incredibly communal and incredibly meaningful, which is production. So the experience of creating things for others. Often, you know, it's hard to produce things alone. So it's creating things together for others. And I talk about how in our economy, the amount of people that experience the who have the opportunity to experience the experience the joys of co-creation or co-production is shrinking and shrinking. So for example, when you don't have an anti-monopoly regime and there's a lot of corporate concentration, there's literally less and less people who um, who feel like they're running something or stewarding something um, because there's less and less leaders of organizations because there's less and less organizations. When you have eviscerated the labor, uh, you know, the presence of labor, you have less and less employees that feel like they have a stake in what they're doing. They often, you know, it makes you feel like you're more of a cog in someone else's machine if you don't, you know, through having a union, say, feel like you have a stake in what you're building together. Whereas, you know, you hear sometimes, you know, Teamsters talk about, you know, we built these cars and they feel partially through the legal structure of them having power in the firm through their union, a sense of ownership over what they're doing. And, you know, we could talk about other examples like community businesses, even, you know, ununionized community businesses or community enterprises like cooperatives. Those are places where you're spreading out the experience of co-creation and production and ownership um, because it just feels closer at hand. And that's all just in the economy. In Civic life, too, we have this consumer culture creeping in where I talk about um, someone once described it's government as a vending machine. You feel completely separate from your government and from your politicians. You are given a consolation prize of choice. Like you get to pick from, you know, you get to pick who, who, who you vote for once every four years, you get to pick this or that when it comes to like, you're given choice when it comes to different civic life, you know, some in a poll at some point, but you don't, you don't have a different sense of civics, which is we are all part of our government and we're all co-creating it through our participation in civic and community life. Um, Because the government has opened itself up to our uh, opinions, the civic structure has allowed for flourishing of different interest groups and civic organizations that you can join up with to have your voice be heard. And you are invited as an individual and taught, we say in civic education growing up, that the point of politics is not just fights and it's not just choosing your favorite thing every four years, choosing who you're going to cheer for on the TV. It's um, you honestly co-creating your shared world together. And that, you know, that would be a producer like civic culture. Um, um, But we often have a consumer like one where we just say, you know, I gave my tax dollars into the vending machine of government. I get every four years to hit the buttons and, Hopefully what comes out is good stuff and then I can bang on the outside of the vending machine if it's bad stuff. But that's a totally different relationship to your world around you than feeling like, you know, we're in this together co-creating, um, co-creating what, you know, what our shared uh, structure is going to be. And so um, 
I definitely agree with what you said, which is that this consumer uh, relationship, you know, is is a uh, counter to kind of a spirit of commitment and ownedness and uh, co-creation and the things that come with it, you know, a sense of purpose, a sense of connection and community to the people around you, a, a sense of depth over shallowness. And, and eventually, you know, if you talk to people who are really civically active or who have co-created something wonderful, you know, in the economy, um, a lot of joy. And how does a person get to be one of those dedicated people? You know, I one of my uh, messages of this book is that, you know, I am a fellow browser and I know how hard it is because the there are fears that come with commitment. Um, uh, and to be join the dedicated, we have to overcome these fears. And so three fears I talk about in the book is one is the fear of um, one is the uh, fear of regret. The fear that if you uh, commit to something, you're going to wake up 20 years from now and wish you had committed to something else. Another is the fear of missing out. The fear that if you commit your future time to something um, and lock yourself in, you won't be able to be everything everywhere with everyone. And a real special one to my generation is the fear of association. The fear that joining up with something larger than ourselves will threaten our individual identity or our reputation among our friends or, you know, just the messiness of working with other people. Um, it might, uh, that, that would come and And that's what is holding us back. You know, we are worried about regret. We're worried about missing out. We're worried about association. But the message I'm trying to say with this book is now is the time to be a little brave and that the type of bravery that we need um, in life, like the big moment where you decide to, um, you know, to, to be courageous, doesn't have to be waiting for some big, brave moment in, in the streets where some, you know, Hollywood dragon appears and you have to slay it in that one moment. It's actually this moment where you overcome these fears um, because this is the real type of heroism that actually helps things, the long haul heroism. And so we need to tell people and remember, and this is what I'm trying to get with this book, is on the other side of all of these fears are immense gifts. And they're not that far on the other side of the fear. So on the other side of the fear of regret is the power of purpose. You know, if you are able, you might be scared when you first dive into something that you're closing a hundred doors. But then once you settle into the room, those regrets, as you know, all 50 of the long haul heroes I interviewed said, those regrets immediately start fading away because of the sense of belonging you feel in that room, the purpose you feel in what you're doing. Um, the fear of missing out eventually fades because you get all the you discover that you are not going to miss out on the sweetest novelties of all, which are the novelties at the end of a long haul. Like I said, you know, mastering, you know, mastering this piano piece, being, you know, learning more about a friend because they trust you because you've been friends with them for five years, watching your kid turn 18 and graduate, um, being an elder in the group that you were a rookie in. Um, and then finally, uh, the fear of association on the other side of that um, uh, is there's always a valley of uncertainty and discomfort um, on 
uh, uh, that you have to pass through to build community and associate with other people. People are messy. Working with other people are messy. But if you can make it through that and build community, on the other side of that valley of discomfort is the deep comfort and security of being part of something. Um, It is, you know, one type of security and comfort to be alone and have no one bother you. And there's a huge valley of where it might get a little worse when you're first getting out and making friends or joining up with something or working out how to be part of a cause. But then over time, you pass through that valley and you get to the other side and you feel the type of comfort and security and and just joy of friendship that you've never felt. Um, and you're so glad that you went through that valley. And if we can remember that those are on the other side and have a moment of being courageous, I think uh, I think we can all join up with uh with the committers do you have a a favorite long haul hero among the 50 you interviewed um i love my i love the story i'd love to i'm sorry i'm gonna have to say two um because i I like saying on each (laughs) side we'll accommodate to two yeah um (laughs) on one side um i just love the story i loved interviewing mickey Raphael. he was um he was Willie Nelson's, he still is actually Willie Nelson's harmonica player. And Mickey, you know, he was a bit of a loner in high school. He used to, you know, none of the kids let him play in the bands with them. You know, he hardly could play the triangle. But then one day in, um, he's at the Rubaiyat Club in Dallas and he sees Donnie Brooks play the harmonica and he just feels the spark of the divine inside of him. He's like, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to play the harmonica. And he goes home, he buys a Marine band honer harmonica. Um, and he starts carrying it with him everywhere he goes. He totally is committed to it. He plays it. He walks around the track in high school, playing it all the time. He tries to learn riff after riff. He totally perfects it. And he becomes known around Dallas as the, this harmonica kid. Um, that's amazing at it all because he committed to the harmonica. And then Willie Nelson's in town. They, he hears about, he needs a harmonica player um, for, you know, some recording. He has them sit in with them and play the harmonica. He does good. Willie says, why don't you come join the band? And, you know, decades later, he's still in the band. He's ended up playing for presidents. He's traveled all around the world. He's now probably the most famous, one of the most famous harmonica players in the world um, and uh, lives this incredibly adventurous and joyful life of all these things I talked about, purpose and belonging and depth and joy. And it's all because he committed to um, one particular thing and uh, you know it seems like the smallest of things a harmonica but it's totally uh you know uh, made as you know had him had a you know an incredibly adventurous life and i just love that example because it's like you could commit to something as small as a harmonica and who knows what will happen the other one on the other side of the um kind of cause spectrum is evan wolfson i loved interviewing him he is the one of the lead lawyers that had spent 32 years uh, struggling to, uh, you know, uh, reach marriage equality in the United States. Um, So, you know, 32 years before 2015, when the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, um, Evan wrote a third-year paper in law school called The Constitutional Case for Gay Marriage. And 
you know, that paper was completely fringe at the time. So it's this, you know, it's it's the lowest form of legal writing, a law school paper. And he's writing about a thing that is completely fringe, that his teachers are saying, what are you even talking about? But he says, I really believe in this, and I'm going to start advocating around this. And he starts this 32-year winding walk where he starts by helping kind of agitate inside of queer circles and queer act activists and funders to even have a marriage strategy at all, to even make that a cause that they're even fighting for. He eventually does get a little bit of funding and support to, you know, have a few people agitate around that. He eventually gets his first state to legalize gay marriage in 1993 in Hawaii. But then there's a backlash for 10 years and he navigates that whole backlash where he thought all was lost. Then he gets a second state, Massachusetts, 2004. And this isn't just him. It's a whole movement, but he's been with it the whole time. And then he does another 10 years of hand-to-hand combat of each state you know, um, trying different media strategies or political strategies or funding strategies to get more and more states to legalize gay marriage. And eventually he gets to hear that his idea, you know, quoting some things from his original third year paper um, from 32 years ago, eventually becomes the law of the land. And he moves it from the lowest legal writing to the highest legal writing a Supreme Court decision. And what I love about his story is that it shows so strongly that change takes time, but it happens. And the one of the groups I'm trying to correct um, with this book is that the people who think change is going to be immediate. Um, and uh, that's, you know, part of my fight here is to say, you know, change does take time. Everything that matters uh, takes a while. But the bigger group I'm trying to fight is the people that after they see that change isn't immediate, think nothing ever changes um, and become cynical and just say it is the way it is. I want to say, you know, with this book and with the story of Evan and others like him, um, change does happen. It just requires a long haul, which requires people to be dedicated. And if we can learn to be a more dedicated people and, you know, uh, embark on a few more of these long hauls. Who knows what we'll, what other changes we'll be able to see? Well, your your book is um, a solid argument for something fundamental uh, and much needed, and it is a a book filled with good advice. My own favorite line that I'd like you to expand on is "Bloom where you're planted." Yeah, that was um that was I you know, I, it's a common uh phrase. So I don't think the person who told me about it and invented it, but he said it was a person named Pierce Freelon who um who uh is this artist and activist in Durham, North Carolina. And what's interesting about Pierce is Pierce has these, you know, is an amazing artist. He's a total like art visionary. He's the kid of you know, major, uh, a major architect and jazz musician. And, you know, when he's thinking about his own career, he says, well, you know, all these messages I'm getting are that, um, you know, the place to be a big giant, big shot artist is to be in Brooklyn or LA. Um, those are the places you have to go. You have to leave your home. And he loves his hometown of Durham. You got to go to New York. You got to go to LA. And that's the only place where the magic happens in art. Um, and if you never do that, you'll always regret it. And you'll always be thinking, what if I went to New York or LA? What if I like went for the gold? 
and his he went on this long journey feeling that way but then he eventually said you know um if i go to new york you know and i'm one block away from a gatekeeper that's keeping me out um that's you know there's no joy or success in being proximate to a gatekeeper that's keeping you out as opposed to in his town of durham he knows all the people that run all the venues. He knows all the people that promote all the events. He knows all the other musicians. He's been, he knows all the people that are starting the businesses and running for city council and coordinating the big community festivals. And he said, you know, it hit me that if I just do my art here, you know, especially in this internet age, you know, I can immediately, you know, not wait for 10 years to work my way up the giant thing or not, you know, go on the wild ride of fame or something. I could, you know, immediately start making beautiful art here with all my friends that I know. And um, and in a place where, you know, I'm on the other side of the gate because I'm part of this community. And, um, and he has come to terms with that and you know, helped be part of this amazing flourishing of Durham, of the like Durham art and activism scene. And eventually he eventually moved into politics too, and is on the Durham city council as well. And, um, and he said, you know, the thing that helped me is, you know, these phrases he got from his grandma. And one of them was enough is as good as a feast. You know, if you are playing for, a crowd of your friends and neighbors and everyone's vibing to your song and you feel the magic of music. Why is that any worse than, you know, being in a giant stadium? It's the same experience. Enough is as good as a feast. And, um, and then the other message his grandma kept telling him was bloom where you planted, you know, um, if you're here and you got these people around you and you're rooted to this place, like let's make some magic happen here. And uh, that's one of that will you'll never bloom and you'll never feel that magic if you're constantly thinking, should I have been somewhere else? Should I have done this? Am I living up to my potential, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So that's that's the message I got from Pierce, which was wonderful. Very wise. Uh, Finally, Pete, uh, what are you dedicated to today? Well, I am very proud to say um, that. I, um, while I was writing this book, I, um, I got married and so I I made a huge commitment (laughs) in my life. And while I was, uh, in the process of writing this book, I moved back to my hometown of Falls Church, Virginia, right outside DC that I talk about in the book and started getting involved again in the local community. And, um, and in my kind of day-to-day work life, I, um, am very, you know, part of the, what I like about this book is it's kind of a prequel to any substantive cause we all care about because you know it doesn't go into the specific substances of different causes in the book it talks about what we're going to need to advance any cause which is dedication but you know after this book's out i kind of want to focus on what are the substantive long hauls that i care about and the one i'm currently working on is i really care about this project of deepening american democracy um which is the project of how do we open up political and economic power to more people in more ways? And how do we strengthen people to, you know, use that power and to co-create our shared world? And so I work on this project called the Democracy Policy Network. You can go to democracypolicy.network to learn about it, which raises up concrete state policy ideas for deepening democracy. 
Well, that sounds like a big project to be dedicated to. Thanks so much for sharing your views with us today, Pete. I really appreciate your time and wish you lots of good luck with your ongoing projects and with your new marriage. Well, thank you so much. And I, you know, I am so grateful for what you all are doing with the New Books Network. It is a great example of long haul dedication to this uh, culture of reading. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And the thing I always like ending on is, in addition to this book being about encouragement, I want it to be about gratitude as well for the long haul heroes that make the things we love in life. So that is my version of expressing gratitude for all of you who keep this wonderful podcast network going. Well, thank you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye, Pete. Bye.